Imagine if you, or not you, but a friend, or not not your friend, but their friend, so a friend's friend. Imagine if that person lives in Russia, in one of the regions that isn't Moscow. Now, I'm sorry to tell you this, but in this scenario, that person is now online and accessing the adult website Pornhub. I'm not passing judgment. It's a personal matter, and I'd rather not discuss anyone's browsing habits. But today, it's a news story. That's because one of the advertisements that appears before some of Pornhub's videos is actually a promotion for the Wagner paramilitary cartel, which has recently had to find new ways of recruiting in Russia since losing access to the prisoner population. For example, the mercenary group has started opening recruitment centers at sports clubs around the country and at at least one high school. Anyway, the ad itself is a looping video of a woman sucking on a lollipop. It's suggestive, yes, but not explicit. And a woman's voice says, well, actually, this part is explicit. A woman's voice says, we're the most fucking badass private army in the world. We recruit from all Russia's regions. Don't jerk off. Go work for private military company Wagner. At the very end of the video, there's a phone number displayed that has also appeared in random comments posted on social media by accounts inviting young men to volunteer for Russia's special military operation in Ukraine. The head of Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, you've heard a lot about him lately, later told journalists that he's proud of his marketing team for placing these ads on Pornhub. Go fight in PMC Wagner? Enough jerking off? Who could be against this? Prigozhin asked reporters. I, for one, would rather jerk off. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Hello, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. My name is Kevin Rothrock. I'm your host, and this week marks the 99th episode of the show. In celebration of that milestone, this episode features zero guests. It's just me talking, reviewing some recent news events, and reflecting a bit on this podcast and what it means to me. The biggest story this week involves the tragic end of a flying killer robot somewhere in the Black Sea. America's adorably named MQ-9 Reaper drone reportedly crashed after being showered in jet fuel and then rammed in the propeller, a tough day for anybody, by a Russian fighter plane in what the Pentagon describes as an unprofessional, dangerous, and reckless act. One U.S. military official told Nick Schifrin that it was not a controlled tap, but a botched attempt to harass the UAV. Meanwhile, Moscow denies any collision or funny stuff, claiming that the drone simply fell into the sea after some kind of abrupt maneuver. It happens. Russia's Air Force says it detected the American drone moving in the direction of Russian airspace and scrambled jets to identify the intruder. They wanted a closer look. The next day, Nikolai Petrushev, the secretary of Russia's National Security Council, confirmed that the Russian Navy is now looking for the drone wreckage. U.S. Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley later told journalists that the Pentagon was able to scrub the falling UAV of any sensitive intelligence, which makes it especially endearing that Moscow is still going to such lengths to retrieve it for the Americans. I'm sure Washington looks forward to its discovery and return. What a moment that will be. One of the strangest stories I've read in a while is the tale of Pavel Shulzhenok, or maybe it's Shulzhenok. I'm going to try to avoid 
saying his surname. Anyway, this guy Pavel, he used to be a Russian Orthodox deacon. He was married to a real woman once, and they even had two children. I say real woman, not in the sense that J.K. Rowling might use the term, but because Pavel now has an imaginary wife, whom he invented and named Monica. He speaks through Monica on his Telegram channel, where he shares his political views, and especially his hatred of all things Ukrainian. He charmingly named the channel Atrocities, period. Incidentally, Russia's new McDonald's clone uses the same formula, in part, in its name, Tasty, period. Writing for the news outlets Novaya Vkladka and Mediazona, journalist Ivan Kozlov dug into this man's background. It turns out that Pavel uses footage of a dance show celebrity to breathe life into Monica, using the star's likeness for edited videos and photos. Despite his deep Russian Orthodox faith, Pavel embraces an Afro-Brazilian religion associated with magic that he believes allows him to communicate with wayward spirits. And there's no better home for such communications than social media, so it's no surprise that he's established himself on Telegram as a purveyor of hate speech sprinkled with anti-Kremlin criticism of Russia's various battlefield failures and setbacks in Ukraine. The whole affair would be just a sideshow, still sad, yes, but a sideshow, were it not for the normalization of anti-Ukrainian radicalism in Russia. And in fact, soldiers on the front lines who might read Pavel's ramblings could actually act on them. It turns out that inviting Telegram followers to vote on their most beloved picture of a mutilated Ukrainian corpse is now Russia's zeitgeist. Now, maybe more than ever, one of the most common reasons people around the world likely read about Russia, or listen to podcasts about the place for that matter, is to soak up news that is just outraging. You know, how could they do that? Who are these people? Unfortunately, Russia has a lot of these stories, particularly when it comes to the justice system's lack of respect for political freedom. Repressive laws adopted in a heartbeat, almost without debate, neighbors and students ratting each other out to the police for thought crimes, and harsh verdicts against ordinary citizens and modern-day dissidents alike. There are new cases of these incidents all the time. And sometimes it's not the response from the authorities that's so surprising, but the boldness of the activism itself. In these cases, the payoff isn't so much outrage as, I don't know, the joy of performance, maybe. And some outrage, too, probably. For example, a military court sentenced a 22-year-old man to 13 years in prison for setting fire to an army recruitment center outside Moscow back in late February 2022, just a few days after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Kirill Butilin also filmed himself throwing Molotov cocktails, like a lot of Molotov cocktails, through the windows of the recruitment center. And he even released a manifesto where he wrote, let these motherfuckers know that their own people hate them and will get them in the end. The earth beneath their feet will be burning soon. Hell awaits them at home too. Butilin made it abroad by the time this document was published online, but he didn't get far enough. Belarusian officials apprehended him at the border with Lithuania and promptly sent him back to Russia. Afterward, he actually escaped custody, albeit only briefly, before being caught again and moved to a full-blown pretrial detention facility. Another legal drama that's attracted even more attention inside Russia is the case of Masha Moskaleva, a sixth grader in the Tula region who was taken from her father and placed in a rehab shelter following a series of events that began almost a year ago, in April 2022, 
when she submitted an anti-war drawing to her art class. Her teacher immediately contacted the police, truly a model citizen, and federal agents and Child Protective Services were involved in the matter within a day. Deviant art is a top priority, after all. Masha's drawing depicted a woman and her child standing beside a Ukrainian flag adorned with the phrase, Glory to Ukraine, and the woman is holding a hand up against two inbound rockets fired from an area where a Russian flag is planted. They're Russian missiles. It's not ambiguous. Initially, officials confronted Masha's father, Alexei, at her school, brought him in for questioning, and eventually fined him about $430 for discrediting the Russian military, not because of his daughter's drawing, though this seems to be what piqued their interest, but for posts and comments he shared on his own social media accounts. Clearly, after getting the call from the art teacher, the cops got to work digging up dirt on the dad. Online, Alexei had suggested, for example, that Russian soldiers are rapists. You're not allowed to do that today in Russia. The story doesn't end there. The FSB kept harassing the family at school until Alexei decided to keep his daughter home indefinitely. In December, police raided their apartment, temporarily placed Masha in a shelter, and beat up Alexei before interrogating him again for several hours and finally charging him again with discrediting the military. But this time it was a felony case that carries a maximum penalty of three years in prison. Then, earlier this month, police arrested Alexei in connection with this case. A court placed him under house arrest, and child services took away his daughter, transferring Masha to an orphanage. A hearing on Alexei's parental rights won't take place until April 6th at the soonest, which means that Masha will spend at least a month separated from her father. Her mother, incidentally, is alive but has long been out of the picture. According to reports, the shelter where Masha is now being held refuses to let her speak to her dad on the telephone. In fact, there's been no outside contact with her at all since March 1st. This is not an isolated thing. Last year, researchers at Ovede Info reported on criminal cases opened against eight minors for anti-war statements. And we have no idea how many students in total across Russia have faced bullying, harassment, and legal consequences for expressing opposition to the war in Ukraine. More than eight kids, it's fair to say. By prosecuting Alexei Maskalev now for discrediting Russia's military, the authorities in Tula aren't waiting around for the adoption of expanded restrictions on criticism of Russia's invasion that may already be law by the time this podcast episode is released. Back in late January this year, Evgeny Prigozhin, you remember him from the Pornhub segment of today's show, he urged the Speaker of the State Duma to sponsor legislation that would ban all speech that discredits any participants in Russia's so-called special military operation. That includes all the violent criminals Wagner Group recruited when Prigozhin was still allowed to enlist prison inmates. It includes Wagner Group's notorious executioners who have published footage of them killing a man with a sledgehammer, an instrument that Prigozhin now uses as a calling card. He even mailed one to the European Parliament, smearing it with fake blood and packing it in a violin case, which is a separate allusion to Wagner's nickname as the orchestra. The only member of Russia's Federation Council to vote against the expansion of these speech restrictions was Senator Ludmila Narusova, who happens to be Ksenia Subchak's mother, for those of you keeping track at home. Narusova even referred to the sledgehammer execution footage in the chamber's brief discussion about the draft law. It didn't go anywhere. Obviously, but even the whisper of opposition inside Russia's federal government today feels bold. Early in the full-scale invasion, she also complained during a floor discussion 
about conscripts being sent into battle in violation of promises from the Kremlin and the defense ministry. So somehow, much like her journalist celebrity daughter, it seems, Nadrasova has carved out a little space for herself within the establishment to speak a little truth every now and again. Speaking of anti-war vibes within the Russian elite, they've actually been trending a bit lately, not because of any protests or major schism, but thanks to a public relations mess that has anti-war figures bickering once again. I don't want to spend too much time on this because the book of Russian opposition infighting is endless and pretty dull in the details, really. But the general story is that jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation recently released an investigative report accusing numerous persons of accepting Moscow city money to boost Mayor Sergei Sabyanin's reputation. One of the people who sipped from this alleged slush fund was Alexei Venediktov, the longtime head of the erstwhile Echo of Moscow radio station. He's still in Moscow, banging about on YouTube, and he retaliated by releasing photos of a letter signed by Anti-Corruption Foundation chairman Leonid Volkov and several other prominent opposition and free press individuals vouching for the character of Alpha Group's billionaire shareholders. Separately, and writing on company letterhead, in fact, Volkov privately appealed to the European Union's foreign policy chief and recommended EU sanctions relief for Mikhail Friedman, Pyotr Avin, and others at Alpha Group, even though the Anti-Corruption Foundation publicly advocates sanctions against Avin as a warmonger. Now, Volkov later apologized for acting without his colleagues' knowledge and called the whole thing a political mistake on his part. And he's supposedly taking a pause as chairman of the foundation, which is currently celebrating an Oscar awarded to a recent documentary film about Navalny. In fact, members of Navalny's team have been sharing hyperlinks on social media to a pirated copy of the film, apparently hoping to make it available to more people inside Russia, where, yeah, it ain't for sale or available to stream legally. Now, while the scandal has damaged Team Navalny's reputation a bit, critics have long speculated that Alpha Group exerts some kind of influence over its operations. This affair also provoked a wider debate about the utility of sanctions against specific individuals in the Russian elite, and how some kind of exit route is needed to prevent the sanctions from merely rallying everyone to the Kremlin. Do the owners of Alpha Group represent the healthy part of the Russian business elite, as Anti-Corruption Foundation Executive Director Vladimir Ashurkov argued on Facebook? Or are they nothing but an organized crime group, as Vladimir Milov, another Navalny ally, recently put it in a YouTube video? I only hope that I, too, can collect as many good character references when I am a billionaire. And folks, it's never too early to start sending those in. In fact, I've already received some character references from this show's listeners in the form of comments posted at places like Apple Podcast, CastBox, and Podcast Addict. Yes, most of the reviews are from years ago when the Naked Pravda first launched. I used to take time in every episode back then to ask listeners to rate the show, to improve our stats, and boost us in whatever algorithms are running all this stuff. As best I can tell, the show scores a 4.8 out of 5 stars with a total of 361 ratings. and there are now 46 reviews, the most recent being from about three months ago. I'd like to take a moment to read some of these reviews. The upside of relying on academic interviewees is you get concise and contextual commentary. 
This has lulled the team into a soporific comfort with this method of getting information to the listener. The downside is that when the academic is clearly bonkers, Kevin doesn't have the inborn immunity of a skeptic to just scrub the interview and chalk it up to poor judgment, writes Stuff and Nonsense from the United Kingdom. Thanks for the feedback. In his questions and discussions, the host of the show betrays a remarkable ignorance about Russia. I don't understand why exactly he was hired by Medusa. Is he even fluent in Russian? Some guests offer interesting insights, but the host himself offers nothing of value. Additionally, his partisanship is on full display when discussing matters that have a nexus to U.S. domestic politics, writes Vikram, Vikram, Kerr, Vikram, Vikram Kerr in the United States. I'm glad you like our guests. Samson1917, another reviewer from America, also praised the Naked Pravda for its guests. The show quality really depends on the guests. Sometimes guests who are experts in one field are invited to discuss a separate field in which they are not experts, leading to poor quality shows. Also, the host's knowledge of Russia is sometimes suspect, as well as his Russian language. It's gratifying to know that my work here is connecting with so many people around the world. I've been the Naked Pravda's main host since the show launched in November 2019. If you're listening to me now, you probably already know that I like to shift between a few formats, sometimes interviewing one expert about something they wrote, sometimes asking several experts about a subject in their wheelhouse, and occasionally I do a show like this one where I simply talk about some news, choosing the stories that I think capture the flavor of recent events in Russia. Medusa's English language team is now bigger than ever, and you can find in-depth coverage of all these stories I talked about today and a lot more at our website. Please check it out if you haven't visited in a while. And tell your friends and colleagues about this weird Medusa project if you think they might be interested. Almost as much as recurring donations to support our work, word of mouth helps keep this ship afloat. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. Stay tuned for many years more, so long as you stick with us.